So this morning, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, as we kick off a new sermon series to start this new year, one another. And it's not lost on me this moment together that we have to celebrate this coming together of two churches to now join as one at Alpine First Baptist Church. And what we're going to do for the next four or so weeks is look at the commands that Jesus has given us through his scripture towards one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, weep with one another. So this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus has done this to make two groups one together by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. The main idea is this. That Jesus' intent was not only to save us to a future hope by his death and resurrection that we will only one day realize, Christ has purposed to merge two groups of people into one new humanity that transcends divisions and differences because he has reconciled them to God, thus making peace. So in other words, the gospel of Jesus doesn't just simply save us to a future hope. We have not just believed to one day now just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back one day and then have this new realized life. No, this is something to be realized for us today. Now, for example, when I was a kid, I heard one part of the gospel very clearly. God is God in his love sent his son that whoever believes in him won't go to hell but will one day go to heaven and live with him forever. Despite all the bad that I've done, God's love for me has shown in his son, and I no longer stand under the penalty of death that I deserve because Jesus has done that for me. Is that good news? Absolutely it is. But there's something that happened in my mind as a kid. It's almost as if it was like, is that all? And that feels bad to say. Like, of course, that's awesome that God has saved me from the punishment of sin and death. But it was almost like, well, what do I do now? And I had this conflict as a kid growing up. I remember wrestling with it in my mind. I thought, well, Jesus has saved me from my sin, so I don't need to sin anymore. So what it means to follow Jesus is I just need to do everything I can to not sin. In my mind, I thought, well, what I could do is just lock myself in my room, get every distraction out of the way, and then I would be free from sin, and I'd just essentially kind of wait for Jesus to come back. But then I thought, well... My mind is also sinful, like I can think bad thoughts, so that's not good enough just to sit in a room all alone. But then also I thought, well, what good is that going to do? Shouldn't I be doing something? I was conflicted. And not to mention, like, I would have lasted 15 minutes max before I got so bored I gave up on the whole project and just left the room entirely. But I think what happened for me as a kid is I was realizing only half of the gospel in that moment. And I think we can see that within our culture, a culture that professes to be Christians, who are Christians only by profession, and maybe they show up to church every once in a while. Of course, you will have people that only participate in church as an event, because Jesus has saved me then, and now I just wait for him. However, in Ephesians, Paul speaks about the purpose of Christ and his death and resurrection, not only as a future hope, but a lived reality that is right now. It's not just a future hope but a lived reality in our lives today. So this morning, let's look again at Ephesians 2. I just want to look at the very first part. We're going to see three things this morning. We're going to remember, reflect, and respond. Remember who we are outside of Christ Jesus. 
reflect on who we are now in Christ Jesus, and respond to one another in the ways of Christ. Paul opens up this way. He says, therefore, remember. Now, memories are a funny thing. If you walk into Century Drug in downtown Alexandria, you won't only find the best patty melt in Sin Law. I think it is anyway. When you open the doors, the smell that first hits you is the exact smell that I remember from my grandmother's house in Denham Springs. Now, I don't know why. She never made patty melts or anything like that in her kitchen. But the smell that hits me when I walk into Century Drug, it transports me right back to my grandmother's kitchen. And not only does it bring me back there, it floods me with all of the memories. I mean, I can feel the cold brick under my feet. I can still see her brown cabinets and the doorframe where all of her kids and now grandkids are marking their height. Memories are a really funny thing. And scientists have said, well, at least I've read it that they've said, that smell is one of the strongest links to memory. You smell one thing and it can bring you right back to a place. And then for me in that moment, when I open the doors to Century Drug, I'm brought back to my grandmother's house. I can still hear the sliding glass door. I can hear the whirring fan that I slept in that room. It's all right back to me. Now, Paul tells us this morning that he wants us to remember. Because memories, good or bad or indifferent, can color our identity about who we think we are and what we are becoming. Memories can take us to really, back to really bad days. Memories can take us forward to really good days. And Paul believes that we need to remember who we are. For us to live in the gospel and within this transformative community, the instruction from Paul is to remember. But to remember what? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. We'll see four things here that he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember that we've been excluded from citizenship, that we are foreigners to the covenant promises, that we are without hope and without God. And tell us how you really think, Paul. Like This is heavy here from Paul. Now, when Paul says this, that he wants us to remember, if you gaze all the way back up in your Bibles to chapter 2, we'll see exactly what he wants us to remember, where he says this, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Now, we, now sin is a word that we commonly use. Confess your sins, repent of your sins. I have sin in my life, and we use it to encapsulate just about everything we've done wrong, but Paul doesn't. He uses two words here. He uses another word, trespasses. And that's a word that we don't commonly use. We don't typically come into church on Sunday morning and say, I got some trespasses I need you to forgive me of. Like, what do you mean? You walked on posted property? Like, what do you mean that you have trespassed against us? If we look into it, the Hebrew word that often gets translated to transgression is pesha. And pesha can mean a couple of things. Pesha means to uh, break trust, to violate trust, to violate or break a relationship or to rebel against. Now, it's interesting when we see these instances of Pesha throughout the scriptures, Pesha can happen in a group. It can happen as a personal one-to-one or in a relational context. Let's just look at a few. Pesha in a group. Think of 2 Kings at the death of Ahab. Moab Peshed with Israel. They violated an agreement. They broke trust and they rebelled. Pesha is also personal. So in the Old Testament law, if someone breaks into your house and steals something, that is called robbery. But if a neighbor does it, it's Pesha because it's personal. It's a transgression. When Jessica and I 
first uh, had Russell, we were new parents, and new parents is the most terrifying thing in the world. We have four kids now, and the fourth one, you just add them on to the already burning pile that's happening in the house. But the first kid, the first kid is terrifying. And everything that's happening, everything is all out of control. It seems like chaos all of the time. Well, we live in a modern age where we can just get on our phones and order Amazon or diapers from Amazon. They'll show up on your door. Well, we were coming home from Jessica's parents one day. We were out of diapers. Russell was crying in the car. We pull up to the house, and our Amazon box is there. When we get up there, it's opened. And someone took the diapers out of the Amazon box. Now, why any door thief would want diapers from the Amazon box, I don't know. But I tell you, I was so mad. I was so mad at what happened. And not only because the diapers had been taken and we didn't have any, and now I had to go to the store, but I also felt violated. I felt like someone had come onto my property without me knowing, and that just felt, in a way, just sticky, in a way. Someone had been rummaging through our stuff. That's Pesha. That's a transgression. Now, sin, on the other hand, it's a word we use more frequently, but familiarizing ourselves might prove helpful. The Hebrew word here for sin is kata, which can mean a few things. One, kata can mean to miss the mark or goal. For example, it says in Judges among the Benjamites that there, these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not kata. They would not sin? No, they would not miss the mark. It says this in Proverbs, that kata is a way of missing the way. Desire without knowledge is good. Hasty feet will sin, or kata, or miss the way. Now, here's why I believe that Paul uses both of these words, that we are dead in our transgressions and sin. Because it's not just our sin that we have against God. It's not like we've just missed some standard that God has set, and we could maybe make up for it, maybe we could shoot again and achieve the goal then. No, we are dead in our transgressions and sin. Humanity was created to be in relationship with God. Adam and Eve, the first declaration for them from God was to rule the earth and subdue it and live and walk with God, to live by his wisdom, to walk with him, to be with him. But what did they do? They pesched. They violated a relationship. They broke fellowship with God. It's one thing to say that Adam and Eve, like, they missed the mark. Like, they just didn't do what they were supposed to. Did they not? Yeah, they they totally blew it. But it's more than just making an error and trying again next time. No, they violated a relationship with God. They broke fellowship with him. Just think of how Paul says it in Romans. He says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For judgment following one trespass or transgression brought condemnation. And this is what Paul wants us to remember, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We can think that we live a pretty good life and we might mess up sometimes, but no, that's not it. We are dead in our transgressions. We have violated a relationship. And he goes on further, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 2, still at the top, Paul tells us this, not only are we dead in our transgressions and sins, We used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
Now, why is this so important? Paul's big idea, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15, this is what he says. This is what Paul has in mind, that Christ has not just saved us for a future reality, a one-day lived reality, but a present purpose now. Here's what he says, starting in verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Why is this so important? You know, a new humanity by Paul, it sounds like a good idea, but it's not necessarily a new idea. A community of people who, despite their differences, come together for a greater good. In fact, I believe that this is intrinsically a part of who we are as humans, that we want to identify with a community or a culture or things like that. I mean, for instance, when I go home this afternoon, I'm going to turn on the TV and I'm going to watch the Saints because if they win today and Tampa Bay loses, the Saints, they're in the playoffs because the Saints are my team. And I'm going to turn on the TV and join with the hundreds of thousands of other fans across the state of Louisiana. Despite how bad they are, because really, they're terrible. I don't expect them to win. My affection for the saints, the football team, not the church, is going to compel me to cheer for them with 100,000 other people. But is this the new humanity? Is this the idea that Paul has? We see this idea in pop culture. The hit television show, Star Trek, embodies this idea of a new humanity where it brings a diverse cast of different people and species from other planets to work together on the Starship Enterprise, overcoming prejudices to live in harmony for the greater good. Now, I want to time out here. I didn't actually know that. I had to Google references of pop culture for a new humanity. I don't watch Star Trek. I don't know if they're Wookiees or what, but it's the same, it's the same idea that people from different... <laughs> I know, I'm, actually that was a joke to rib Kevin because I know, I've not seen it, but Wookiees, I know they're not Star Trek. Anyway, it's, this idea is not lost on us. If you go to, down to Saturday in Baton Rouge, everybody's going to be wearing purple and gold. We're all cheering for one common good, but this does not bear the weight of a new humanity. The point is, we find groups to belong to. We find people with common ideas or common practices or beliefs because I believe we're made in God's image. We desire to find an identity like this somewhere. But our sin nature naturally divides and creates hostility, causing us to transgress against one another. Because what we do is create our own identities that can never hold the weight of bringing a diverse group of people together. The New Orleans Saints, New Orleans Saints football team can never hold the pressure of bringing a new humanity together and everyone living in harmony and peace together because I want to fire the head coach. I don't think he's doing a good job, but he's a part of our team, but I still want him excluded. So how, how do we then, how is it that we are united as one new humanity? Before we get there, here's the second thing Paul wants us to remember he says, therefore, remember, not only that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but that you were formerly Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, this is, might catch you as odd, but this is just an identity marker 
that people are going around calling themselves the circumcision because they believe that they are the people of God. And when they call themselves this, the circumcision, they are elevating themselves above another person or people. Now, we all do this in some way or some form. We have identity markers that we go by. So for example, if you catch me talking to my dad, you're probably not gonna hear me call him dad or daddy or father. You're gonna hear me call him Bob. And it's not a way of, um, it's not to put him down at all. It's just an affectionate nickname that we've all deemed him as Bob. In fact, many of you in the church probably call him Papa Bob because that's what our grand, the grandkids call him, that's what we call him, and it's just Bob. So nine out of ten times, I call my dad Bob. It's a nickname that we just go with. And I've become John Bob. And so we share in this common nickname that unites us to our family. A nickname can be used as a term of affection, but it can also be used as a term of defamation, to put down. We have a strong history in America for calling people names that show we despise them. For modern readers, what Paul is saying here can feel like a really weird train of thought. But there is a group of people within the new humanity in Christ that are trying to elevate themselves up by calling themselves the circumcision. And what they're going back to is in Genesis, God chose the one man, Abraham, that he was going to restore or bring a blessing through this one man, that his family was going to be blessed. Genesis 17, I think I have it, yes, on the screen. Let me read for us here. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. You see, circumcision for the Jewish people was a symbol of the covenant that God made to Abraham, that they are God's chosen people, and that God will be their God, and through this line, they will be the blessing to all nations. You see, Jewish people claimed exclusive right to God, to go to the temple to pray, where they would go to meet with God, to be in his presence. There were areas where there were walls or barriers that would not allow a Gentile to go any further. They were far off from God. There was an actual physical barrier that would keep them out, a wall of hostility, Paul calls it. And this is what Paul tells them. Remember that you are Gentiles. You are outside of the covenant promise. William Barclay points out that the actual hostility from Jews toward Gentiles were made in comments like this. They believed that the only reason God made Gentiles is to be kindling for hell. It was said that if a Gentile woman was giving birth and in need of a Jewish woman, wasn't allowed to help to bring another Gentile into the world. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile woman, they would hold a funeral for him. And so here's Paul saying, like the purpose of Christ is to break these two walls of hostility and make one new humanity, both Jew and everyone else Gentile, to repurpose them in Christ. You see, in a world where Man, there's a a boogeyman in every closet. In a world where if you have a different opinion than me, I might be suspicious of you, but if you disagree with me, you're an enemy. In a world where these are lived identities, they become dividing walls of hostility. 
And they can be really big things like our political identities, like, man, if you vote Democrat or if you vote Republican, I don't know if I can be around you. If you support Trump or you don't support Trump, I don't know that we can even be friends. And these become dividing walls of hostility. But the message of the gospel in Christ Jesus is that he has broken these and it's a lived reality today that there should not be anything that divides us. And these can be small things, whether you choose to do homeschool or public school, whether you're married or single, you have a long marriage or you've been divorced, you're a high income earner or a low income earner, you name it. I mean, these are just random examples. And it would be something silly. Are you a Ford man or a Chevy man? A Toyota's the right answer, but we, we let these things divide us. And we think that we have an idea of someone or something because of the way they dress or the way they act or what they do, and they become superficial identity barriers. So what does Paul want us to do? He wants us to remember that we are outside of the covenant promises of Christ. But he doesn't just want us to remember that. He wants us to reflect on what Christ has done. What is strong enough to unite us here at Alpine First Baptist Church? Is it that we all live in the same area or we all dress alike or we all have a similar job at a similar income level? Is that powerful enough? Is it powerful enough that we all like LSU or the Saints? No. Here's what Paul says. is what is powerful enough. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Let's jump back up to Ephesians 2 where Paul says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. What happens with us in our identities and what is happening in this community in Ephesus is that there are some that believe because they are of the circumcision that there is something that they have done to earn God's favor and love towards them. But this is Paul's, this is Paul's message of the gospel. It is not by anything that you've done, but only by the work of Christ Jesus and his great love for you. And this is what has the power to unite two groups into one. Because even though as we gather here this morning, I just want us to pause really quickly and realize that something extraordinary is happening within our two churches to become one. And I don't want us to lose the significance of the moment. I was in town the other day, and I ran into a pastor who's pastors in sin law, but, you know, our paths really don't cross. We're kind of like name only type of deal. And he said, hey, he said, I heard that uh, Wardville's coming to join with you guys. I said, yeah. And you know what he said? He goes, How's that going? Because immediately, like, he's been around for a while. He knows, like, church splits happen, and people get upset, and they leave. And so, how's that going? It's like, man, it's going great. It's going wonderful. 
Because we have the shared bond of Christ Jesus. We've been brought near by his blood. Now, we'll remember today as a significant day for both churches. And I think that it is with an excited anxiousness that we approach it, an excited nervousness, because we have questions like, what is going, uh, what, what's it going to look like? How are we going to blend? What will life groups look like? What will the different ministries be? Will I have an opportunity to serve? Will I be accepted? Will they accept me? Will I be seen? Can I be heard? Are there opportunities for me to serve or to be served? And these are natural questions. But what will unite us, though, is not a particular hobby or interest. What will unite us is not a shared love of politics. What unites us is Jesus and him alone and his complete love for us. You see, it's tempting to judge people by their identities, their quirks, their idiosyncrasies. And what we can do is we can find a reason to not unite. However, when we view each other as the bride of Christ, as brother or sister in Christ, it should cause us grave hesitation to exclude, put down, or push aside anyone. Because has Christ Jesus done that? It, it, would, it should be a grave concern for us if we just are like, well, I just don't like this person because X, Y, or Z. When that person is the bride of Christ, loved, chosen in him, set apart for his glory and pleasure, who am I? Who are we to exclude anyone in that manner? The story of Corey Timboon. Now, if you've been at Alpine for a while, you've heard me talk about Corey Timboon uh, because a few years ago I read her book, The Hiding Place. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, and it just radically, like, it just shook me. It, just the whole thing from back to front, it shook me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Corey's story, she was in a concentration camp. She got captured for hiding Jews in her home. Now, in this concentration camp, both her father and her sister died, but miraculously, Corey survived. Now, Corey lived in the worst conditions, from bedbugs that infested their rotting sleeping mat to being forced to strip naked and hose off in front of German officers. It was a terrible experience. Now, when Corey got home after surviving all of this ordeal, she went around speaking at various places and churches, talking about how, in spite of all that she saw, she still saw God work. And then one day at one of her talks, she saw him, the German officer that was over her at Ravensbrück. If I could just read an excerpt from her book. She says this, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was a truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. 
There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead light, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp, where we were sent. Now, he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with my coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our hands, joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former God, guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. What unites a former concentration camp guard and his prisoner Shared hobbies? A love for gardening, maybe? No, it could never. It's only the love and forgiveness that we have been brought near to the, by the cross through the blood of Jesus. That is the only thing that has the power to sustain us. It's not common education. It's not common race. Not common income levels. Not common accents, jobs, or anything else. Christians come together because we have been saved by Christ Jesus and we live for a common allegiance. And this is the drumbeat that we must march to. There's going to be days in the next month, six months, year, where 
our feelings get hurt. My feelings get hurt. Someone's feelings get hurt. And in that moment, we can choose to withhold forgiveness. This can happen in your home with your spouse or amongst your kids or whatever it is. A grave sin can take place. And in that moment, you can put an iron clamp over your heart and refuse to open it up. But the only thing that can soften it is the love of Christ. And it's something that Paul tells us we must remember who we were outside of Christ. Because when we remember who we were outside of Christ, we remember his great love for us, which means we remember his great love for others. So, how do we move this forward? I think one of the questions for us is what is the core of your identity? What do you identify as? Is it a particular thing or a particular rhythm in life that you have found? And if that rhythm doesn't match your rhythm when you come into this church or go into this area, then you'll break away? No, the common identity, our core is as Christian in Christ. We are in him. In 500 AD, in Confessions, Augustine wrote, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Friend, remember who you were outside of Christ Jesus, but also reflect who you are now in Christ Jesus. Paul says that he sets us in the heavenly places with Christ. Let's close by looking at this last portion from Paul in verse 19. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is powerful imagery that Paul is using here because we know that the temple is where you would go to meet with God. And now Paul is saying it's not a place where you go, it's a people that you are. And when we gather as a collective group of believers in Christ Jesus, God's spirit is with us. We can confess our sins to one another and they be forgiven. We can love one another as Christ Jesus has loved us and feel the love of Christ. His spirit dwells among us. It's not a place that we go. It's who we are, the people of God. And this is why I started off earlier, like the cultural Christianity mindset of me was just that the gospel was something I believed in, accepted, and then a future reality later as a kid. And that's why we have a whole host of people that are just Christian by profession only. They don't show up to church because they don't see the big deal because they don't understand the second part of the gospel, that God's spirit dwells here, that it's not just a future hope, it's a lived reality now. If you, I've used this illustration before, uh, but it's appropriate here. If you go to Istanbul, you will find a group of people of different language, customs, food, clothing, everything will seem very foreign to you. And it will be absolutely foreign. But did you know that there's a place that you can go in Istanbul and it'll feel like you're right back home? If you walk into the U.S. Embassy in Istanbul, they will have your food, they'll dress like you, they'll talk like you, they'll act like you, they'll have your customs. It'll feel like you are at home even though you are a thousand miles away. So it is with the church. We are an outpost of heaven when we gather together. We talk like our Savior. 
We have the mannerisms of our Savior. We walk in his ways. We don't let divisions and hostility break apart. We consider others more important than ourselves. We exhort, we submit, we love, encourage, push, hold together all in who? Christ Jesus. And in that way, this church tastes just a little bit on earth as it is in heaven, where all things are new, where, where mercy and love are the common currency. So what do we do? We remember who we are outside of Christ. We reflect on what Christ has done, and we respond by joining together in his spirit and walking in his ways. Now, here is the temptation. Here's the temptation that we will fall back into, is that we'll want to believe that our God is not gracious. We'll want to believe that it's still somehow up to me. It's still somehow up to something that I do for God to love or accept me. Martin Luther had this same temptation. He said this, I know how I sometimes struggle in the hours of darkness. I know how often I suddenly lose sight of the rays of the gospel and of God's grace, which have been obscured for me by thick, dark clouds. In other words, I know how slippery the footing is even for those who are mature and seem to be firmly established in the matters of faith. This was my temptation as a kid and still can be today, that I don't believe that God's gracious and I still need to not sin so that he will love me. I still need to just uh, huddle myself, pull away. This was Luther's struggle early in life and he got this from Romans 1, 17, which says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is what we know, that God is righteous and that I'm, I'm not. So if God's righteous and I'm not, how can God love me? How can God be for me? But the righteousness of God is not just a description of God. It is something that God shares with us. You see, the righteousness of God is not just something to define him and exclude us. No, the righteousness of God is something that he gives to us in his son. He shares with us his righteousness. He shares with us his glory, his wisdom, his power, his life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, God gives me his righteousness. That means I can be confident before God. Because Paul tells us we are in him. And it says we're seated in this place. Not that we will one day be, that we are there now in Christ Jesus, in him. How can we share with his righteousness in Christ? And for Luther, where he went, where he writes about this in the freedom of the Christian, he doesn't go to Romans to argue this. You know where he goes is the Song of Songs in chapter two, verse 16, where he says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And he paints this picture of God is not just in heaven passing out grace as he wills, but grace is more like a marriage. And so he told the story of a marriage of a king and a, a prostitute. You see, when the prostitute comes to the king, everything that the prostitute is, all of her shame, scorn, all of her sin, is now the king's. All of her debts, everything that she owes when she joins with him in marriage, is now his. But so too it is the king towards her. All of his goodness, Wealth, everything that he owns is now hers. And so is it with us in Christ Jesus. We are able to give him, as the bride of Christ, all of our sin, shame, scorn, embarrassment, things that we wish people would never hear about, never know. Jesus says, it's mine. Give it to me. 
And Jesus gives us his righteousness, love, grace, mercy, and freedom. How? By the blood that brings us near to the cross and creates peace 